Hello, students and residents. My name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today on this episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. As Zach alluded to during our last episode, this is the first episode of the bonus educational content that we are going to be putting out to supplement our monthly oral board cases. The goal of these bonus episodes is to dive deeper into topics that I was tested on during the preceding episode of the game. Before we begin, I want to give a short plug to our sponsor, Pearson Rabbits. As you probably can recall from recent episodes, Pearson Rabbits is a company that specializes in disability insurance for physicians, including both residents and attendings. Let me share a quick story with you guys. This happened just two and a half weeks ago to me. I was bouldering at my favorite climbing gym when I unexpectedly fell from the top of the climbing wall and landed on my right wrist. And for reference, I'm right-handed. It hurt, but I didn't think too much of it until later that night. The same night after the fall, I went into my overnight ED shift where I had to physically restrain a combative hypoxic overdose patient who we had just pushed some IV Narcan on. In the process of doing so, my wrist pain went from just a twinge to excruciating. I was sure that I had fractured something. It was so bad that after my ED shift, I checked myself into the ED to get an x-ray and get splinted. After talking with occupational health, I learned that I would not be allowed to work clinically with a splint as it violates hand hygiene protocols and that I would need to take disability leave if the splint was medically necessary. Luckily, after an urgent appointment with sports medicine and a STAT MRI, it was determined that my injury did not require splinting at work, and I was allowed to return to work. I'm telling you guys this story because it was my wake-up call for how valuable and necessary disability insurance is. I'm an otherwise healthy 29-year-old male who just prior to this was planning on signing up for disability insurance right before graduating residency just to lock in the lower rates. I thought to myself that nothing would happen, but I was certainly wrong. So much so that after this fiasco, I immediately sent Stephanie Pearson an email requesting a consultation for disability insurance, and I'm in the process of enrolling myself. Don't wait until it's too late. Go to www.pearsonrabbits.com today and click on the Contact Us link to fill out a form and get in touch with the Pearson Rabbits team today. Now... Back to the episode. The most recent episode of the game focused on the evaluation of fever in a returning traveler. There were two main takeaways from this case. Always be sure to ask for a travel history when evaluating somebody for possible infectious symptoms, and be sure to utilize cdc.org to see which infections are endemic to the area that the patient had traveled to. I don't want to bog you guys down with the nuances of malaria, dengue fever, or other infections that you might see a handful of times in your career if you practice in the U.S. Instead, I'm going to focus on the aspect of the case that I botched up, and that aspect you will see every single shift, I promise you. That is, the identification and management of sepsis in the emergency room. Sepsis is a complicated topic. It is one of the most studied topics in medical literature, and simultaneously one of the topics we have the least amount of evidence-based guidelines for. I'm going to teach you about the sepsis 2 definitions and guidelines. Long story short, 
the medical community as a whole mostly agreed upon the criteria and definition for sepsis based on the sepsis 2 guidelines. However, in 2016, the world was turned upside down when sepsis 3 was released, having totally new definitions and criteria for defining sepsis. The vast majority of hospitals in the U.S. today still use sepsis 2 definitions and guidelines, so that is what we are going to be discussing today. There are four definitions slash diagnoses that you guys need to know, and you need to know the clinical criteria for each definition. You will look like an absolute rock star if during your assessment and plan, you can list which diagnosis your patient has and explain what criteria the patient meets in order to earn that diagnosis. I have had a handful of medical students present their sepsis patients to me in this manner, and I was blown away. So, the four definitions in order of increasing severity are SIRS, which stands for Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. So let's start with SIRS, again, which stands for Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. You need at least two of the four possible SIRS criteria to meet the definition for having SIRS. The four SIRS criteria are as follows hyperthermia or hypothermia, that being a temperature greater than 38 Celsius or less than 36 Celsius, tachycardia, that is a heart rate greater than 90, tachypnea, that is a respiratory rate greater than 20, and alterations in the white blood cell count, so a leukocytosis greater than 12, a leukopenia less than 4, or a bandemia greater than 10% bands. If your patient meets at least two of these criteria, they meet the definition for having SIRS. So let me repeat this one more time. Significant deviations in body temperature, significant alterations in white blood cell count, tachycardia, and tachypnea are your four SIRS criteria. Now, if your patient has SIRS and you suspect a source for a possible infection, then they meet the criteria for having sepsis. That's it. The reason there is a distinction here is because there are many conditions that can elicit a SIRS response, but not necessarily be due to infection. Some of these conditions include pancreatitis, pulmonary embolism, or even just a panic attack can meet SIRS criteria. So again, SIRS plus a suspected source for infection equals sepsis. Easy. Severe sepsis is the next step up in severity from sepsis, and it is the precursor to septic shock. There are many criteria for meeting severe sepsis, but it can all basically be boiled down to hypotension or evidence of end-organ dysfunction. Hypotension here is defined as a mean arterial pressure less than 65, or a systolic blood pressure less than 90. End-organ dysfunction is a broad term and can present in many different ways, the most common of which being lactic acidosis. There are a list of labs that you need to look at to evaluate for end-organ dysfunction. The labs that you need to look at include a lactate, a creatinine level, a platelet count, an INR, and a bilirubin level. More specifically, 
a creatinine greater than 2.0, assuming the patient has normal baseline renal function, is indicative of end-organ dysfunction. A platelet count has to be less than 100, an INR has to be greater than 1.5, a bilirubin has to be greater than 2, and a lactate has to be greater than 2. So again, severe sepsis is sepsis with evidence of end-organ dysfunction, which can be proven with hypotension or with laboratory studies, including creatinine, platelet count, INR, bilirubin, lactate. This is probably the most complicated one, but don't worry guys, we're going to go through it one more time before the end of this episode. Additionally, if you're on shift, you can just Google search severe sepsis criteria and all of these numbers will pop up for you. And finally, that brings us to our fourth definition, the most severe septic shock. A patient who is in septic shock meets criteria for severe sepsis with the addition of either having persistent hypotension, so again, a systolic blood pressure less than 90 or a mean arterial pressure less than 65 despite adequate fluid resuscitation, or they have a persistently elevated lactate level greater than 4, again, despite fluid resuscitation. And that's it. So let's review. There are four definitions you need to know. The first one is systemic inflammatory response syndrome, and there are four SERS criteria. If you meet two of the four SERS criteria, you are classified as having SERS. Again, the four SERS criteria are fever slash hypothermia, tachycardia, tachypnea, or significant alterations in your white blood cell count. If you meet criteria for SERS and have a suspected source of infection, then you meet criteria for sepsis. Severe sepsis is defined as having sepsis plus evidence of end-organ dysfunction, such as hypotension or abnormal laboratory studies. The lab studies you need to look at include a creatinine, a lactate, a platelet count, an INR, and a bilirubin. Again, the specific numbers, a creatinine greater than 2, a platelet count less than 100, an INR greater than 1.5, a bilirubin greater than 2, or a lactate greater than 2. And finally, septic shock is severe sepsis with either persistent hypotension or a persistent lactate greater than 4. And that's it. Master these criteria, and you will not only be well prepared for your intern year in emergency medicine, but you will do great on your slow. A little bonus information here. If your patient meets criteria for sepsis, most clinicians would draw a lactate, blood cultures, all of the labs to assess for end-organ dysfunction, and start antibiotics. This is in addition to evaluating the source for the sepsis, which usually includes a chest x-ray, a urinalysis with urine culture, and any additional studies needed to assess the pathology. For example, if you suspect an intra-abdominal abscess in a post-operative patient, you would need a CT scan of their abdomen. And then, if your patient meets criteria for severe sepsis, most clinicians would give a 30 milliliters per kilogram fluid bolus to begin resuscitative efforts. Now, there are many issues related to this large fluid bolus, including reimbursement being tied to it, poor data to support it, and possible harms in patients who are already euvolemic or hypervolemic. 
but that discussion is for another time. One last thing, guys. I gotta give a plug for MD Calc. They have a calculator that runs through all of these criteria in a stepwise fashion, and I would highly recommend using it on shift. And that's all I got for you today. Feel free to send me an email with any questions, comments, concerns, if you have any questions about residency, anything really. You can reach me at mike at emclerkship.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you in two short weeks with another episode of The Game. Until then, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.